Father. What a treasure you've given us in your holy word. There's power in your word. It's a sharp and living word, piercing to the very soul. Lord, we ask that your word would uh, minister to us, that it would help us, that it would show us more of who you are and our need for you, that it would answer deep-seated questions that would be more than an intellectual uh, stimulation, but heart change, transformation, growth, salvation. We ask for your help, Lord. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Okay, so for those who are visiting, it is our Q&A Sunday school, and I have two already, and if we get through these, then we can take more. There are more in the room. So here's the first question that uh, came in. In 1 Samuel 21, we know that David ate the showbread and nothing happened to him. But early on in Numbers 15, a man picked up sticks on the Sabbath and God gave permission for him to be put to death. Knowing that God cared about both of these things, the eating of the showbread and not carrying sticks on the Sabbath, how is it that one man was punished and the other wasn't? It's a good question, right? So let's go to these places. Let's go to Numbers 15, since it comes first in our Bible. Not in our question, but in our Bible. Numbers 15, starting with verse 32. Why was David allowed to eat the showbread without anything happening to him while this Sabbath breaker is executed. All right. Numbers 15:32. While the people of Israel were in the wilderness, they found a man gathering sticks on the Sabbath day. And those who found him gathering sticks brought him to Moses and Aaron and to all the congregation. They put him in custody because it had not been made clear what should be done to him. Now, scholars of the Bible or just casual readers who've read this portion, why is that a bit confusing? That they didn't know what should be done. Yeah, what does the law say? That the one who works on the Sabbath, what's supposed to happen to them? It's supposed to be put to death. So you make, it makes you wonder, why were they confused? What instruction did they not have? Um, but there it is nonetheless. They wanted to be made clear what should be done to him. And the Lord said to Moses, the man shall be put to death. All the congregation shall stone him with stones outside the camp. 
And all the congregation brought him outside the camp and stoned him to death with stones as the Lord commanded Moses. You know, don't let the movies about uh, Moses and the Exodus fool you because those films often depict a very small group of people. We're looking at uh, estimates of up to a million people. That's a lot of stones. That's a lot of throwing. That is, that's an intense situation, making it very clear, do not do this. Okay, so we see a lawbreaker charged, executed immediately. Then you get to Numbers 21. I mean, rather, 1 Samuel 21. And we have another situation. Starting with verse 1. David came to Nob, to, a, to Ahimelech the priest. And Ahimelech came to meet David, trembling, and said to him, Why are you alone and no one with you? Now, we know that David had just been with Jonathan. He got the bad news that, his, that Saul, Jonathan's father, was not going to be merciful to him. He's not going to pardon him. He was still angry and wanted to put him to death. And so David fled without anyone else, by himself, without any provision. He is alone. Why are you alone and no one with you? David said to him, elect the priest, the king has charged me with a matter and said to me, let no one know anything of the matter about which I send you and with which I have charged you. I have made an appointment with the young men for such and such a place. Now then, what do you have on hand? So first, let's stop and ask the question, did David tell the truth here? No, this was a bold-faced lie. He lied to Ahimelech twice. There was no appointment made with young men. Later we see when David gets to where he's going and people hear that he's there, young men, old men, everyone who's weak and hurt gather themselves to David, but there was no appointment made. He had no time to make it, and the king did not send him on a special mission. So David lied twice. That's important. So he says, what do you have on hand? Give me five loaves of bread or, what is, or whatever is here. And the priest answered David, I have no common bread on hand, but there is holy bread. If the young men, these are the young men that David had this made up appointment with, if the young men have kept themselves from women, and David answered the priest, truly women have been kept from us, as always, when I go on an expedition, the vessels of the young men are holy, even when it is an ordinary journey. How much more today would their vessels be holy? So he lies again, because again, there are no young men. And he's talking about these young men who kept themselves. Again, there are no young men, and there is no um, time of separation from women. So David is not doing well here in what he's saying. 
But this is what causes this verse 6 behavior. So the priest gave him the holy bread, for there was no bread there but the bread of the presence, which is removed from before the Lord to be replaced by hot bread on the day it was taken away. Okay, so uh, there's a, a servant of Saul, and he might go he sees this whole thing. David also asks if there's any weapons, a spear, anything. He says, well, there's that that uh, you took from the lion. That's it. And then Abimelech inquires of the Lord. We find that out later. And he um, basically prays for him, sends him on with the bread, holy bread, and the sword of the lion. Blessed. We don't see any uh, negative response. And we know it was unlawful. We know that David did what was not according to the law. How? It tells us that it was authority. Jesus. Yeah, in Mark uh, 2. Mark 2, 3. On Sabbath, he was going through the grain fields, and as they made their way, his disciples began to pluck heads of grain. And the Pharisees were saying to him, Look, why are they doing what is not lawful on the Sabbath? And he said to them, Lord Jesus giving the accurate situation that David was in. He was in need. He lied about young men. He lied about King sending him on a mission, but he was in need and he was hungry. The Lord is telling the truth. Even when David lies, we get truth from the Lord Jesus himself. So that's good to know. David was really in need and he really was hungry. And those who were with him. covenant forever for them. It was their duty because they didn't have, you know, all that the rest of the tribes had. This is how they had their sustenance. So David did something that was unlawful. This man gathering sticks did that which was unlawful. The man gathering sticks was put to death. David was not He did what was absolutely 
Deuteronomy 15, 7 through 8. The law of love is what this priest was operating under. He had permission from God based on the knowledge he had. Here is David. He's trusted. You know, he even says that to Saul. Who among all your servants is like David? Why would I question anything he says? Based on what the priest knew, David's story was factual and he was in need and there was bread on hand, and the law gave provision for him to give this to him. So the priest did not do anything wrong in giving the bread. Um, and it is also important to note that David was fleeing his life because of an unjust reason. Saul was harassing him. He was persecuting him. He was uh, after his life. He had done no wrong. It was a completely wrong um, driving of David. the first case of the man gathering sticks. Let's look at that. Man gathering sticks. Why was he gathering sticks? Doesn't say. What are some thoughts? Why would someone gather sticks? Firewood. Okay, yeah. Need firewood. Maybe cold, right? Heat up. For an offering? Yeah, maybe he was gathering sticks because he wanted to Make a sacrifice. Maybe you want to build a house, you know, construction. It's my, my day off, right? I don't have to work, and I got some free time. I'm doing a honey-do list, maybe. I don't know. He's cooking, right? Wanted to build a fire so that he could make some, some food. This is during the time, the scripture says there in... Number 15, that they were in the wilderness. While they were in the wilderness, how were they eating? Manna. God was providing everything that was needed by His grace. There was no need to do this. This was not necessity. This was a man who, though God had provided every single day all that was needed, take as much as you need, and for the Sabbath, take a little more, everything that was needed, this was a man who intentionally did what was wrong, though there was no need, there was no danger, there was no threat of his life, there was no necessity upon him. This was not a behavior to preserve life, this was just a, a willful act of disobedience. We fast forward to David. As I said, he is truly on the run for his life. He is in need. He is hungry. 
the priest is under the understanding that he's doing the right thing. And Jesus uses this. He uses this as a springboard to bring forth the truth of what? The Sabbath, sorry again? Yeah. The Sabbath was made for man, not man for the Sabbath. So the Son of Man is Lord even of the Sabbath. It was a springboard to bring forth the truth about who he is. Uh, but I, I see in these two accounts two things. One, Romans 9, 14 through 16. What does Romans 9, 14 through 16 say? Gathering sticks deserve to die for breaking the law. Here are two lawbreakers and a holy God, and he chooses to give mercy to David and does not choose to give mercy to the man gathering sticks. What does he give that man? Justice. Yes, death, punishment, justice. God gives mercy and he gives justice. He never gives injustice. He never does wrong to anyone. So the big picture is God chose to give mercy to David and not to give mercy to this man gathering sticks. And the question is why? One suggestion, one thought, I think, um, has some feet to stand on. And that is looking at these two accounts through New Covenant eyes. man gathering sticks, a man who is <clears throat> on the day of rest when God has already provided enough. He wants to work for himself. Is this not the picture of natural man seeking to please God by his own hands? On the other hand, you have a man who is a liar who is given mercy, who is given provision, who is given grace. David doesn't earn the bread. He doesn't work for the bread. He doesn't pay for the bread. The priest has the power to give it to him or not. And he, by his merciful heart and gracious mind, gives to David what is needed to preserve his life. I think it's a picture of gospel versus salvation by works. But that's what I was able to come up with so far. Anybody have any other thoughts, additional ideas? Yeah. 
and another case of David's life where he and nothing happened to him. What was that? Right? The sense that he knocked Israel. And he said, like, I did this. Right? Let, let it happen to me. We see God giving mercy to David. When he deserves justice. And again, speaking of the pattern of God giving mercy, we think the person should be crushed. of lying and God still gives mercy to him still provides what he needs any other questions about that I think I'm missing something that's vital yeah so he came by himself, and, um, so we're, we're taking the, the language that the priest himself says, you are alone, and no one is with you. So we say, okay, does that mean that he had a small band with him? Um, well, Jesus' words seem to indicate that there were people with him. Unless we understand what Jesus is saying as the bread that David asked for these five loaves where he went was provision for those who would come to him and that was used to feed others. Um, it doesn't say if you go to you know, 1 Samuel 21 and I was looking at it again today and seeing maybe before or after but yeah, you have David going straight from Jonathan. Um, he has no sword. He has no weapons. He had no food. If he had time to gather a band of men, certainly he would have had time to gather some, some supplies as well. Uh, so the commentators seem to understand that what Jesus is referring to is that the food that he got was used to help and feed others who would gather themselves to David along his journey. Anybody hear anything different or see anything different there? See, in, verses, in chapter 20, right there in uh, verse 42, right at the end, here's David and Jonathan. Then Jonathan said to David, Go in peace, because we have sworn both of us in the name of the Lord, saying, The Lord shall be between me and you, and between my offspring and your offspring forever. And he rose and departed, and Jonathan went into the city, and you immediately get, Then David came to Nob, to Ahimelech the priest. Why are you alone and no one with you? So that's how it's squared in the minds of commentators. Does that square with y'all? Do you think that's a, a valid explanation?
that's yeah, that's I, I think that that's the lie that everyone gr- jumps on. Um, but then the question of did G, did G, did David send um, people ahead to go make an appointment with? I mean, we we know how this happened. Here he is with Jonathan. Hey, go see your father. You know, there's no indication that he made any provision in the future or talked to people or sent horses. Uh, it was such a, a delicate matter. He's like, hey, even the guy, even the kid who shot the arrow, right? Like, we don't want anyone else knowing about this. This is just between me and you. And as he's traveling, you know, he even pretends to be mad, and he, he's he's showing all the signs that he is alone and in danger, and he doesn't know who he can trust. Uh, some say that he told the lie to Ahimelech so that Ahimelech would not be complicit in a conspiracy, right? So he couldn't, um, Ahimelech couldn't say, yeah, I did know the truth and I gave him this even though I knew King, you were after him. So some were saying, just based upon what we know about David, that he was trying to look out for Ahimelech. And then the, the, the tragedy of it all is that who ends up actually suffering punishment because of this action? Ahimelech and, what, 80 priests? I mean, except for one who escaped. Now, some have said, actually, Ahimelech was related to Eli. He came from Eli's house. Remember Eli, his two sons, was it uh, Hophni and Phinehas? And the Lord put them to death, and what did he say to Eli? What was going to happen to his house? It was going to be cut off. And so I'll say, well, this is a fulfillment of that prophecy. And so, again, you get the providence of God, the sovereignty of God, mixing all these accounts together to bring about his will. Uh, but, yeah, in this story, I just see, you know, again, Jesus as the bread of life. He is the showbread. He is the true sustenance. Those who eat of his flesh and drink of his blood will never hunger and never thirst. They will live forever. He is the true bread for those who are hungry and are ungodly and in need, and he is the one who satisfies. And I just see gospel pictures in this. That's my current understanding. Okay. Any other questions about the bread or the, or the sticks? Yeah, yeah. Right, so to, to breaking the Sabbath means to work on the Sabbath, right? To do when it says that no work's supposed to be done, and Jesus made it clear, uh, my Father's always working, I'm always working, there's never a time when the Lord Jesus is not working. And so in that sense, uh, yes, there's a breaking of the Sabbath, not in the sense that that makes Jesus a sinner. Uh, sin is transgression against the law. Jesus is not a transgressor of the law. As the giver of the law, he has the authority to, um, 
one, he understands the true meaning of it in that it is not a violation of God's law to do good and to, as we saw with the Deuteronomy, um, giving to the poor. Uh, and as Jesus illustrated, pulling a, an animal out, how much more to help this. So yes, Jesus is not a lawbreaker that makes him a transgressor or a sinner, but being Lord of the Sabbath and the one who gives the law he has the authority to do what he needs to do um, without in any way being guilty of sin. Yeah. Okay. Question two. It's a biggie already. Not that the other one wasn't. Okay, here it is. Jesus, when the Lord Jesus said, You have heard it said of old, Thou shalt not commit adultery. But I say that if a man looks at a woman with lust, he has committed adultery with her in his heart. Did he mean it figuratively, somehow? Or was he saying that the two things are in fact equivalent or equal sins. It's a good question. So let's go to Matthew 5. Matthew 5, 26 and 27. Or I'm sorry, just 27. Matthew 5, starting with verse 27. You have heard that it was said, you shall not commit adultery. But I say to you that everyone who looks at a woman with lustful intent has already committed adultery with her in his heart. Is looking with lust adultery? The answer is yes. Is it the same thing as physical adultery? The answer is kind of punishment. Look at what he says. Verse 29. If your right eye causes you to sin, tear it out, throw it away, it is better that you lose one of your members than that your whole body be thrown into hell. So the consequence for the look of lust, the look of adultery, is eternal destruction. What is the consequence for the act physically of adultery? It's provided for us in Jesus' next words. Verse 30, and if your right hand caused you to sin, cut it off and throw it away, for it is better that you lose one of your members than that your whole body go into hell. The look and you have the touch. Both come to the same end, eternal destruction. The look is not better than the touch on the day of judgment. On the day of judgment, those who have looked and those who have touched 
will come to the same end. Destruction. Wrath. And that's a sobering thing to remember. And another thing that's important to notice about that is what Jesus says in this very passage about the look. Notice the, 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 the way he words this. Everyone who looks at a woman with lustful intent is committing adultery has already. So by the time you look, you are already guilty. By the time your eyes focus upon the object of your lust, and remember, sisters, this is not just to men, and this is not just talking about married people. Jesus is giving the spirit of the law in any unlawful uh, sexual activity deserves the wrath of God. By the time you look, you've already done it. By the time you touch, you've already done it. It begins in the heart. And isn't this what Jesus said in uh, Matthew 15, 19? Where people, well, the Pharisees are coming to him about you know, not washing hands and all of that. And Jesus explains to his disciples in verse uh, 19, for out of the heart come evil thoughts, murder, adultery, sexual immorality, theft, false witness, slander. These are what defile a person. So from the heart is where all this stuff comes from. The heart is the place. The heart is the issue. And the heart moves the body, moves the eyes, moves the hands, moves the feet, moves the, the behavior. But it begins in the heart. That's the problem. That's the issue. Sexual immorality in all forms and fashions deserves the wrath of God. In the day of judgment, no one will be able to say, but it was only a look I never touched. Isn't that what people in the world say? Hey, look, but don't touch. I'm just looking, I'm not touching. Jesus says, whether you look or whether you touch, your heart is filled with adultery and adulterers deserve my wrath. How does Hebrews put it? The marriage bed is to be held in high esteem, is honorable among all, but what happens to fornicators and adulterers? God will do what? That is the big picture of it, the day of judgment. Now, it's kind of because we don't want to believe that all sin is equal. In one sense, all sin is equal, that it takes one sin to condemn you forever to the wrath of God. Adam ate through how many times? Once. That's all it took. One time. When God's standard is perfection, all it takes is one sin 
to disqualify yourself. The wages of sin is death. Every sin, the soul that sins, shall die. But the Bible does not cover all sin under the same uh, category in terms of consequence or even language. For example, will somebody get John 19.11? And someone else get Ezekiel 8.6? John 19.11? Ezekiel 8.6? Jesus answered him, You would have no authority over me at all unless he had been given to you from above. Has the what sin? Greater Greater sin. There are degrees of sin. There are degrees of punishment for those sins. And we're going to, you know, trace this out. So you see there, here is Pilate being told, you've sinned. Jesus is calling him a sinner for what he's done. But he said, who, the one who delivered me, the Sanhedrin, the Pharisees, that whole council, the Jewish people, they have the greater sin. There are levels to this thing. Uh, someone has Ezekiel 8, 6. Great abominations, and then you have greater abominations. Once again, there are levels, there are degrees. Uh, Another way to trace this out is to look at the Mosaic Law itself. Some sins brought capital punishment. What is capital punishment, children? The death penalty. Some sins meant you died if you committed them. We saw one example in Numbers 15. Adultery was brought up, as, as Greg brought that up, that that's what should have happened to David. Blasphemy, right? There were certain sins that were called abominations. There were certain sins that required the death penalty. There were some sins that meant you were unclean for a while. There were some sins that meant there needed to be sacrifices made. Everything did not result in stoning and everything did not result in a period of uh, needing to purify yourself, so forth. But I think one of the greatest uh, dis, you know, explanations of this degree comes from the lips of Jesus himself in Matthew 11, which is a very, again, sobering passage. Matthew 11, 20 through 24. I say to you, it will be more tolerable for Tyre and Sidon 
So it's not just degrees of sin. It's not just degrees of punishment in this life, but in the life to come. In the world to come, there are degrees. And to think about Sodom and Gomorrah, these men wanted to rape angels. On the day of judgment, they will have it easier. Not that it's going to be easy. More tolerable than the people who Jesus lived amongst and would not repent. And bringing it to us, we have more light than they did. None of those people had this. Full canon, in their own language, their own copy, not a single one. Jesus had not even gone to the cross yet. He hadn't risen again. The apostles had not gone forth. I mean, think of all that you have, church history and all the rest, the sermons on our phones and the access to truth and the devotions. I mean, all this, the light. If those people are going to have it worse than the people in the day of Sodom and Gomorrah, then what would happen to those of us who reject this truth will happen to you if you don't repent based upon all the light and the knowledge that you have. But again, back to the point, there are degrees. All sin is not treated the same in one sense. Every sin brings about eternal destruction, but there will be levels of this. So what does all this have to do with this question of uh, adultery? Well, um, likewise, uh, the physical act does bring about a greater degree. Why? Because, remember, by the time you look, you've already committed adultery. So the adultery happens in the heart. That's the desire to look. My father taught me the first look is from God. The second look is from the devil. When you want to look again before you even do, adultery has been committed. By the time you look, you've compounded that sin. Then you go and talk to them. You're compounding it. Then you make the plans to go be alone. You've compounded it. And then you participate in the action. You have added sin upon sin upon sin upon sin. And that is why it is worse to go through the physical act than merely to just look. Though the look itself, as Jesus explained, brings about his wrath. So, that leads us to the logical question. Does that then mean you take something like internet immorality? Is that a warrant for divorce? What does it say in Matthew 19, 4 through 6?
So Jesus gives an exception. Marriage is till death do you part. And there is a way that you could put this marriage away if the other party commits adultery. Jesus said, if you look, you've already committed adultery. And this plague of internet immorality and the men and women who look at those things, they are committing adultery based upon Jesus' definition of adultery. Therefore, does it conclude that divorce is permissible in such a case? How many of y'all say yes? How many of y'all say no? How many of y'all are unsure? Yeah, I... So, is there grounds, biblically, for divorce if either one of the parties looks with lust? It's adultery. Jesus said it's adultery. And in the same gospel, he says the only way to divorce is for the cause of adultery. You You have grounds. You could say you have betrayed our vows, Jesus gave me permission, I'm out. That case can be made. And to minimize in any way this this horrible thing that is taking place all over the world, the damage that it does, the evil that it is, um, I was doing a little bit of reading and some people have kind of saying, oh, it's not really that big of a deal. It is a big deal. It, you will go to hell if you are engaged in this activity. This is hell worthy. And it is adultery. It is a betrayal. It is looking with lust intentionally and cleverly plotting and scheming and erasing and searching and the whole thing. It's not a fall or a stumble. It's a willful, intentional activity to satisfy the evil cravings that are absolutely forbidden. And for the spouse who is uh, on the other side of that, the heartbreak is the same. It's it's not as though it's, it's not as as damaging or devastating. But let me say this. Though it would be permissible, technically, the question has to be asked. Before we get to adultery in Matthew 5, what did Jesus talk about immediately before? Before he talked about looking with lust and that being adultery, he talked about something else. Hmm? Anger. And anger is the same as what? Murder. So here you got to be consistent. If you say, you look, it's adultery, divorce, do you see your anger as murder and do you really believe that you are worthy to go to prison? If you make a distinction then you're not being consistent. 
Because if you're saying, no, Jesus said looking is adultery and adultery is the way out. He also said anger is murder and murders are worthy of death and hell. Is that how you see your sin? Or do you see your sin as lighter than your spouse's? Again, it is a horrible thing. And the permission is given in the case of adultery to get out. But there's no command to do that. Now, are we talking about an unrepentant, going after, searching after, there is no growth, there's no change, there's no confession, there's no repentance at all. This is someone who just wants it. What are we talking about? That would be a discussion between that husband and wife, their elder, to work through. So, in summary, is it adultery? Yes. And it will bring you to destruction. Is it worthy of divorce? Technically, yes. And it doesn't have to be internet immorality. That didn't even exist in that day. Jesus is just talking about looking. Random stranger down the street. Somebody you're in the church with. Just looking is enough to qualify for adultery. But remember what he said about anger as well. Any other thoughts or questions about any of that? Yes. Sin ruins everything. But we also know this. Sin never stays inside, does it? It, it, it? Sin wants to control you. And sin will not be satisfied to just stay in a corner of your heart. It's going to grow. If you don't kill it, I mean, what's the famous saying from uh, John Owen? Be killing sin or... Sin will be killing you. It will not stay this little cute, you know, little monster. No, it will grow to the King Kong that will crush you and all those around you. So, yeah, absolutely. The, the further it goes, the more it grows, the more damage it does. Now, you have the Christian in Christ the only Christian, right? <laughs> Redundant. The Christian has all of their sins forgiven. So, Christian, for every look and touch of sin, 
Christ went to the cross for those things. And the Christian who knows that does not say, I have a license now to go look and touch all I want because the check's been paid. No, the Christian sees the lover of their soul, the God who made them suffer for them for these evil things and says, I don't want to get anywhere near that again. I don't want to go anywhere close to that again because I don't want to sin. Like, like Joseph said, how could I commit this great evil against my Lord? First Godward, then uh, outward. So there's no condemnation for those in Christ. And if you have looked with lust, repent of these things. Go to the cross. Remember that you have been washed and forgiven. There is hope and help in Christ. Um, Yeah, I needed to say that. Any other thoughts or questions or comments about any of that? Absolutely. Somebody said sin will take you further than you ever planned to go. So, what is the message against lust? Flee. Don't play with it. You're not strong enough. Vody Barkham put it, the godliest man, the strongest man, and the wisest man all fell to sexual sin. I'm not stronger than Samson, I'm not godlier than David, and I'm not wiser than Solomon. Flee from youthful lust, whether you consider yourself a youth or not. Flee from lust and run to Christ. It's not enough to just where purity rings and say, we're just going to be pure. We need Christ, right? Well, amen. Father, we all can see ourselves deserving of death like the man gathering sticks. How often did we try to work when you had provided the manna of your son, gathering our own sticks to build our own homes or to feed ourselves when you have given everything that was needed. Lord, we can all see ourselves as David, liars standing before the priest, needing food and the mercy that comes, Lord. You have given us mercy, though we have been undeserving and ungodly. The kindness you have shown to us as the Lord of the law. Lord, thank you. Thank you for the righteousness that comes from Christ and His death and the resurrection. Lord, keep us from these sensual sins of our generation, of our world. Keep us from the lust of the world, the lust of the eyes, the pride of life. Keep us, Lord, 
from the stains that bring so much damage and offend you so greatly. Keep us from that idolatry. May we all repent for the sake of the Lord Jesus Christ. Amen.